0: Exodus 4, 18 through 31, that's our text. The topic, when God sought to kill her son, Zipporah was ready with a flint knife to circumcise him. The title of our message, It Slices, It Dices, It Circumcises. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, my. Whatever happened? What happened to decorum? All right, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for our morning. You've... uh, encouraged us with worship, Lord. It's just sweet to come together and sing, or even if we just listen to the singing, Lord, and, and to be drawn into the understanding that you're praiseworthy and that you receive our praise. As unworthy as we are, Lord, you receive our praise because of Jesus. We thank you for the Word of God. We're in Exodus, Lord, and we need your help to work through it Uh, To learn from it, to understand it in context, but also to glean from it, Lord, that which is most needful for our own lives as we face trials and triumphs, temptations and hassles, Lord. Uh, We want to know that you're with us, empowering us, and guiding us and leading us, Lord, by your spirit. And so do all those things this morning, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said Amen. Some men wouldn't want their wives to remarry someone else in the event of their death, but not Heinrich Hein. The German poet left everything to his wife, but there was one stipulation. Listen closely. She must remarry, his will read, because then there will be at least one man who regrets my death. I had to think about that for a minute. It's one of the many weird wills you hear about, like the lucky dog who inherited 12 million dollars when his owner, businesswoman Leona Helmsley died, and I do mean dog, Helmsley left the fortune to her Maltese uh, trouble. It's not because she didn't have any heirs. Her grandchildren received less than the dog, according to her will, although a judge reduced the 12 million down to 2 million. Then there was Charles Millar. A Toronto lawyer and businessman, he left his sizable assets up for grabs to pretty much any local Toronto woman. In his will, he said that all of his estate should be left in a cash sum to the married Toronto woman who could birth the most children in the decade following his death. It became known as the Stork Derby, and many women vied for a chance to claim the prize. In the end, four women tied for it, nine children each. Two runners-up were given a small amount for their efforts as well. Now, no one dies in our verses, but I got thinking about inheritances because the word firstborn is prominent throughout. God names Israel as his son, his firstborn, in verse 22. Moses' message to Pharaoh is, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's in verse 23. And then Moses' own firstborn son, figures prominently in these verses, as we'll see. A lot of unusual things happen in these verses, things that have commentators baffled and befuddled. Whatever secondary issues arise, the primary theme is the firstborn. And thus I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, it's because of the firstborn that you can be saved. Number two, it's because of the firstborn that Israel will be saved. Let's take a look at the firstborn and being saved in verses 18 through 23. Now, the very first mention of the firstborn in Exodus is in our verses. It's the first of many mentions. God's confrontation with Pharaoh builds through nine plagues until finally the Lord says in chapter 11, this is 11.5, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of animals? One of the commentators I read this week said, Remember that in the Old Testament, physical things became spiritual truths in the New Testament. They were like an object lesson of God's true intent realized in Jesus. So, what spiritual truth was God showing mankind in the death of the firstborn? Or remember that the Israelites would be spared the death of their firstborn when they sacrificed a lamb for each household and applied its blood to their doorposts. When God saw the blood, he would pass over their homes and their firstborn would live. So the spiritual truth they were being shown was this. The blood of an innocent lamb, properly sacrificed, could substitute for a human being saving his or her life. Centuries later, Jesus would be announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His sacrifice substitutes for the human race, for whosoever will believe in him, saving a person for eternity. The life or death of the firstborn of Israel and Egypt was an object lesson of God's true intent realized in Jesus. So keep that in mind as we read the narrative and answer some questions. Verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said, Go in peace. Common courtesy ought to be practiced at all times. Moses had been with Jethro 40 years, and I'm guessing he was his number one guy as far as shepherding. Jethro would also be missing his daughter, Zipporah, and the grandchildren born to him. We should always think of how our decisions will impact those we love. In the end, we follow the Lord's definite leading, but we can do that with kindness and humility. Now there are those who suggest that Moses, when he said he wanted to see if the Hebrews were still alive, was being less than forthcoming about his real mission. And that's maybe true, we can't say. But Moses was under no obligation to explain everything to Jethro. Sometimes an abbreviated version of your story is the best way to communicate. Everybody doesn't have to know everything. At any rate, Jethro gave his blessing, and Moses now was off to Egypt. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Earlier in this chapter, Moses had been offering excuse after excuse to stay in Midian. Perhaps God anticipated Moses' offering as another excuse that he was wanted, dead or alive, and would be killed should he return. God eliminated that excuse before Moses could use it. And so verse 20, Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. The rod of God was either Moses' shepherd's crook or the smaller rod all shepherds carried. It was God's because of his promise to perform wonders and signs through it. Right after Moses married Zipporah, we were told that they had a son whom they named Gershom. We don't learn the name of his second son until chapter 18. It's Eliezer. Moses had been in the desert 40 years. These boys were grown men. We have a tendency to think of them as children or infants even, but they're grown men at at the time of leaving uh, Midian to go to Egypt. And so verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let's get right into what we think about God saying he would harden Pharaoh's heart. This seems to trouble people. Commentators count 10 passages where we're told that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. There are 10 other passages where we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart in the first sign and in all the first five plagues. Not until the sixth plague is it stated that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Thus we would say that Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent, but he refused, and the result was that God left him to the rebellion in his heart. The hardening God did was to let Pharaoh be confirmed in his own choice to disobey. Pharaoh was no mechanical man predestined to disobey God, he could have chosen otherwise. It's been illustrated this way, the same sun that melts butter also hardens clay. And so God, willing to melt uh, Pharaoh's heart, had he repented and turned to him, finally begins to harden his heart like clay. Opponents to this view like to quote from the book of Romans, chapter 9, Pharaoh is mentioned, and then God is compared to a master potter who has power over clay to make it whatever he wants. It seems powerful until you realize they're ignoring that it's a reference from the book of Jeremiah. In its original context, God goes on to say he will mold a nation one way or another based on their free will response to him. Let me read it to you. It's Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Does any of that sound deterministic? Does it indicate God has predestined the response of that nation? No, not at all. God let Moses know up front what he foreknew as God that uh, Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. Sounds like Jimmy Fallon. He was a late night host. He was the first late night host of Egyptian television, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Anyway, Pharaoh would resist him. Now, has it occurred to you how many of God's great servants had ministries in which men and whole nations would not heed them at all? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were all told in no uncertain terms to go and speak, and nobody was going to listen to them. It was at a time when God had uh, been speaking to his people or these nations for many centuries in some cases, and now he had passed into the realm of hardening their hearts because they wouldn't soften their hearts, Uh, and so this was their ministry. If you're being faithful to God's word and to your work for him, you may or may not see any result or any outward result, any positive result, any conversions. In fact, the result you see may be a hardening against God. I don't say we should rejoice in it, But uh, it's not our purpose to get the result. We're just to be obedient. And uh, depending on the the era in which we live and the place in which we live and all of those things, uh, we may have greater or lesser success in terms of seeing the gospel reach hard hearts. It it may be our ministry uh, to confirm hard hearts. There's another passage in the New Testament that says we are a saver of life to some some people smell us and they just smell Jesus and it's a beautiful thing and we're the savor of death to others We're like a rotting corpse to them and they don't want to have anything to do with us and so you're in good company just obey the Lord and do what he tells you verse 22 then you shall say to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my son my firstborn now spiritually speaking God was father to Israel in this way It was his miracle opening up Sarah's womb to conceive Isaac when she and Abraham could no longer have children that led to the birth of the nation of Israel. And so by his miraculous intervention, God gave birth, as it were, to this new nation. Here's the thing. Firstborn is more a title than it is about birth order there are sons in the Bible who were born first but who are not the firstborn. Ishmael was born to Abraham and Sarah before Isaac, but Isaac was considered the firstborn and the inheritor. Likewise, Esau was born to Isaac and Rebekah before Jacob, but he sold his birthright to Jacob, who was then the firstborn who inherited the blessing. Firstborn does not mean first in chronological order. It means first in rank, firstborn by way of preeminence, with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of the firstborn. Many nations existed before Israel became one under Moses. There were many contemporary nations like Egypt. They weren't the first nation, but they were to be considered the firstborn nation. The further fact that the Savior would come from Israel would only enhance their preeminent status among the nations. And so, if we're ranking nations, which I don't know why we would ever do that, God says, Israel is my firstborn. They are first by uh, decree and in preeminence uh, ahead of all other nations because I gave birth to them and because of the things that I'm doing through them. And so, verse 23, So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, God is not a bully. He's not acting like, you know, the mafia. He's not Don I Am or anything like that. God was preparing for the Passover when he would show the salvation available in the substitutionary sacrifice of the ultimate firstborn son, Jesus Jesus is the firstborn who must die so that all others can live. The fact that Pharaoh's firstborn would die the night of the first Passover if they failed to apply blood only accelerated the inevitable. Anyone who does not avail themselves of the blood of the final lamb is dead already. They're born dead in trespasses and sins. And so when God says, I'm going to give you, in fact, I think it's grace to go to pharaoh and say I'm gonna give you a definite moment in time when your son is going to die unless you do what I tell you and pharaoh faced with that says yeah I don't believe that I'm going to defy you I mean that's grace and then God says well what more can I do here comes death and it's on you his son would have died inevitably uh, maybe some you know accident or old age or mummification or whatever, but um, God says I'll 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 kill him on this night. But here's how you can avoid that, A- and see the type and the picture and the wonder of my love. And he he rejected it. The death of Pharaoh's firstborn was therefore avoidable. Now I just mentioned that Jesus was God's firstborn. How is it that since uh, how, how can Jesus be his firstborn when Israel is his firstborn? It sounds confusing. Well, there's a famous verse in Hosea, Hosea 11, 1, and it says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." So we understand that. That's kind of where we're at in Exodus. God has just called Israel his son. But now that verse is applied to Jesus in Matthew two fifteen, where we read. Joseph and Mary were there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so the Holy Spirit says when Hosea was talking about Israel being God's son, he also was talking about Jesus who would come through Israel as being his son. Jesus is thus identified with Israel, or it might be better to say that Israel is identified with Jesus since he is eternal. The nation of Israel is God's firstborn, but being eternal as God and having come through Israel as a man, so is Jesus, God's firstborn. In Exodus chapter 4, we're being schooled in spiritual truth. The sacrificed lamb of God and his blood can substitute for you and be salvation, or you can take your own punishment for sin, which is death followed by eternal damnation. I love these pictures that God gives because they're so black and white, as it were. They communicate these deep spiritual truths in a very powerful way. Now, secondly here, verses 24 on, it's because of the firstborn that Israel will be saved. The privileges of the firstborn for Israel were, and these are stated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he says, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came. And so Paul gives this list in Romans of the privileges of Israel being God's firstborn son. After the Jews rejected Jesus at his first coming, many would conclude that Israel has no official place in God's plan. In fact, there are many theologies out there that Suggest a replacement of Israel, and that would be the church. We understand that God has a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. He's not through. It's an erroneous and unbiblical conclusion to think that Israel has no place in God's plan. He's not through with them. He can't be because many of his promises to save and bless them as his firstborn are unconditional, they are physical. Material promises that are unconditional. Like I read earlier in our prophecy update, like the giving of the land and the drawing them back to the land and the giving them of a pure language and uh, streams breaking out in the desert and things like that. Those aren't allegories. And we we have the privilege of seeing, maybe we thought they were allegories a hundred years ago, but now we see them coming true in the physical realm. And so God will keep his promises to the nation of Israel. Now, as we read the next few verses, keep in mind that God has made an unconditional covenant with Israel, and it'll help us to kind of wade through some really unusual verses. Verse 24, It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now, that's weird or at the very least it's unexpected what's going on we're gonna see in the next two verses that Moses firstborn son had not been circumcised but before we talk about that who do you think God was going to kill hold your answer for a minute before you answer Moses let me point out that only personal pronouns are used in this description we're only told that the Lord met him and sought to kill him and the hymn is not made clear, not even in the, uh, the flow of the words themselves. It's most likely that God sought to kill Gershom, not Moses. We automatically think God wants to kill Moses because he's the star, uh, you know, and we don't know that much about his kids. But it's most likely that it was Gershom. Probably the best reason for thinking this is The whole flow of these verses uh, is about the living or the dying of the firstborn son of either Israel or Egypt. It therefore makes sense that the hymn is Gershom, the firstborn son of Moses. Now, get into verse 25 and 6. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So she let him go... So he let him go, excuse me, and then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. I'm going to read a long passage from Genesis so we get up to speed on the importance of circumcision to the Hebrews. This is Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and your, uh, you shall be a father to many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is the covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so this is pretty important stuff. God is acting through Moses to deliver Israel. He was living up to his covenant promises to Abraham. A big part of the covenant was for Israel's to, uh, Israelites to be circumcised. Those not circumcised were to be cut off from their people. In his actions against Gershom, God was thus emphasizing the reality and the importance of the covenant. Somehow Zipporah was aware that God would kill her firstborn if he remained uncircumcised. I wish I knew more about what happened. Did an angel stand in their way intent on killing Gershom? Did he suddenly fall terminally ill? What was it like when Zipporah said, I know what to do and approached her adult son with a sharp flint knife? What was Moses doing? And what about Eliezer? Was he also circumcised? Just because it doesn't say he was, it doesn't mean he wasn't. And so uh, it's fine if you have time someday, you should pick up some commentaries and just read what people have to say about these things. It's a hoot. Everybody makes up everything to try and make this make sense. And the truth is, these are the details we have. We want to stay within them because that's where the teaching will be. But there's just a lot of wild kinds of uh, comments here. Mostly Zipporah gets a bad rap. I see her as kind of a heroine, but most of the commentators think that it's her fault that her sons aren't circumcised, that you know, being a Midianite, she didn't want them to be circumcised. There's absolutely no evidence of that. There's no representation of that anywhere in the Scripture. The only conclusion is that they don't want Moses to seem like a bozo and so they have to blame it on somebody else he was a hen-pecked husband wanted to circumcise his boys but you're not going to touch my boys Of course then later she saves everybody by circumcising Gershom and so it's just crazy what commentators get into husband of blood repeated twice as if that somehow helps us understand what it means well it might if we translate it differently one language scholar said the phrase often translated husband of blood Doesn't necessarily mean husband, but rather one bound in a covenant of blood, in this case referring to Gershom's circumcision. And so Zipporah's words might simply have been a declaration that now that he was circumcised, Gershom was bound to the covenant God had made with Abraham. Everything was solved in this action. And I like that. It's very simple and it's to the point, and that's what happens in the text. God's going to kill him. He gets circumcised, he lives. Why so dramatic? Well, on a very basic level, how would it look for the deliverer of Israel to be in violation of the one sign of the covenant? Moses, you had one job, circumcise your boys. And now here you are saying that you're going to lead us uh, based on the covenant that God has made with Abraham, and you haven't kept that covenant? And so it's a big deal. At the very least, it would have misrepresented God at a time when it was super important to reveal him accurately. So guys, this is what God wants you to do. What about circumcision? Uh, Don't worry about that. Just pick and choose what you think you want to do. And so it's very, very critical at this moment. Now, I suppose I should spend a few minutes talking about circumcision as a religious ritual for today. It isn't necessary. There are many passages that reveal this, but none better than Acts chapter 15. It recounts the church council in Jerusalem where certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After much discussion, the conclusion of the matter is this. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from blood in fact we have no obligation to observe any Jewish rules or rites or rituals no diets or days apply to us they are the shadow of which Jesus is the substance we walk in the light not in the shadows and so none of those things apply to us. circumcision is a strictly medical procedure Uh, it has no religious significance it's not the sign of our covenant. Why Moses failed to practice it on his sons eludes me, but I sort of can understand it. He was far from his own people with no hope of ever seeing them again. You remember he thought he was going to deliver Israel and then the next thing you know he murdered an Egyptian and the Israelites were afraid of him and busted him out and the Egyptians wanted to kill him and he ran into the desert and he'd been there for 40 years. And so he got sloppy when it came to uh, keeping uh, the covenant. Never thought he'd get back. Never thought he'd deliver anybody. I can see him immersing himself in Midianite culture. I do offer a fascinating comparison for what it's worth. Abraham knew what it was like to sacrifice his firstborn. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells him to take Isaac, an adult in his 30s, and offer him as a sacrifice on an altar. Abraham obeyed, and God provided a substitute sacrifice at the last moment. In Moses' case, the near death of his firstborn was his own fault, but still he would know a little about what it was like to almost lose your son. God, of course, would send Jesus, the firstborn who would not be saved from sacrifice at the last moment, but who would fulfill all the terms of the covenant God had made with his people and with all of humanity. And so, uh, the firstborn could be spared by these sacrifices of a lamb, but not the firstborn who was the lamb. They all pointed to him. His sacrifice needed to be real. Verse 27, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. The Lord is working at both ends. Moses had been made aware of this at the burning bush. God had already set it in motion. And so Aaron had been prompted to leave Egypt and come and find Moses. We see so little of what is going on. God really is working at the other end and all around you for your good and his glory. We're very impatient people. And the truth is, you may not see some of the work that God's doing in your life this side of eternity. And so we just continue to press on and hopefully enjoy our relationship with the Lord uh, until things get revealed to us. Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord had said uh, who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Big brother Aaron offered no excuses or objections. Perhaps the continuing oppression in Egypt had steeled him for confrontation. Instead of offering excuses, he was excited. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Israel wasn't really a nation yet with laws. They were tribal, governed by elders of each family. He'd been gone 40 years, but the return of Moses would have been a notable event. It wouldn't have been hard to get the elders interested in what he had to say. In verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Hope at last, after more than four centuries, for deliverance. And so Moses and Aaron are off to a good start. God had not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. In fact, the incident involving circumcision showed how committed God was to keeping his end of the covenant. His promises to Israel were so important that he was ready to enforce the killing of any descendant who was not circumcised. That's attention to detail. In the New Testament, we read Paul's words. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. We go on to read, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob God's plan for Israel is on track we ought to remain faithful serving him pointing everyone to the Lamb of God you know who else is called firstborn Christians you and I the writer of the book of Hebrews calls Christians and I quote the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven if you're a Christian you have a preeminent position as sons and daughters of God You inherit all spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You're firstborn when you receive Jesus as your substitute on the cross. The question today is your heart. Is it like butter or is it clay? Let's pray.